Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, March 7th. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So I guess the biggest news for health reporters this week was the surprise resignation of Food and Drug Administration Chief Scott Gottlieb. This is a bigger deal than it might seem. The FDA regulates products worth $2.5 trillion every year. I just looked that up. That's basically one out of every $5 spent in the U.S. That's my favorite piece of FDA trivia. But this is a really big job. And and Scott Gottlieb has been doing, in in sort of an anti-regulatory administration, a very pro-regulatory agenda. We call him in an article last summer or at some point, the, 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 something, the headline was something like the libertarian who fell in love with big government. <laughs> <laughs> I never really thought of him as a libertarian. I saw that in some of the sort of big things, the, the big headlines of what, what he's been up to. I know we've talked about a lot of them. I think he's done a lot of things and he should get credit, I think, for both having a pretty broad portfolio of ideas and also empowering career FDA officials to sort of high level jobs who sort of know where the bodies are buried and had ideas for what to do in a wide range of areas. I think the things that he tends to be most proud of have to do with tobacco regulation, where we're not very far along in this process, but he has at least signaled that the FDA should be more aggressive in regulating smoked tobacco products, including banning all flavors, including menthol, which has sort of been controversial and a that challenge That hasn't in the happened past. yet, right? Hasn't hap- a lot of this stuff hasn't happened yeah. yet. And he also has more recently taken on this crusade to try to regulate um, e-cigarettes and, and, that has and vaping products more aggressively, and we've started to see that happen. I think another thing that he really wanted to do early on and actually has achieved to some degree is trying to speed up the process for approval of generic medications. Uh, so the idea is that if we can get generics into uh, the market faster, then there'll be more competition. That will help lower drug prices and will you know, uh, improve the functioning of the market. And I think generally he has had an eye on drug prices, which is not something that I think is traditionally the purview of the FDA. Generally, we think of the FDA as uh, caring about technology development, making sure the science is good and the things that are coming to market work and are safe. But I think he has felt that affordability is part of what FDA should start to care about. And so he's thought about policies that could have an effect. And he's been I think an advisor to Alex Azar and others in the White House and in HHS who are working on drug pricing as a kind of bigger portfolio. So I'm sure, I don't know. And and also none of the four of us are experts in food and nutrition policy, but he's been an aggressive regulator there. He's been doing food labeling issues. He's been doing, certainly on the domestic policy side, and now that Mattis has gone from Pentagon, he probably has more bipartisan support and respect than anybody in the Trump administration. And he's done a lot on on opioids, too. He's done opioids work. He's, um, I mean, tobacco is what probably, you know, without 
being a buddy of his. I think it may be dearest to his heart, but he's had a really broad... I did the menu labeling, which is actually an Obamacare rule that's been knocking around for almost a decade. He finally got that, that through. You know, that was the many years long fight with what we began calling big pizza. And he um, likes to chide people on Twitter. He's, and he's really transparent. I mean, he blogs, he gives speeches, he appears at media events. He's he been answers, on this podcast. He, yes. And I think we've all been at events with him. He tweet. He does these Sunday night tweet things that we have to run around and say, oh, my God, please don't make news. It's Sunday night. Um, the, the, you know, he's, he's really transparent. He's able to you know, explain things in plain English the way someone like Tony Fauci does on the, on the public health side. Um, you know, we, we have not had this voluble FDA commissioner in ever. Yeah, for a while. Well, since David Kessler. David Kessler, maybe. But David writes books and Scott tweets. Um, <laughs> there was no Twitter when Kessler was head of the FDA. I, mean, I have I no doubt yeah. he would have been an active he, he, Twitter he's, user. He's, he's considered, you know, sort of an aggressive regulator, a very good manager for a somewhat demoralized agency. I mean, I watched how he would speak to his people during via Twitter, often during the shutdown. And, you know, sort of this I'm on your side morale boosting, you know, we'll get through it kind of uh, speeches. And, and, you know, and he's been active on both the food, tobacco and drug side. So he's, it's a big void. Now, not everything he started is going to ever get finished without him there. We don't know who it will be the acting. We don't know who will be the next person. We're hearing names, but we don't know. Um some of the things that he wanted to do, the you know, others in the administration not so crazy about menthol, as Margo mentioned. So, Kimberly, what happens now? Well, they they have to you know pick who's going to um, take his place. Uh, President Trump was a huge fan of Dr. Gottlieb. Um, often tweeted about him. Um, I know he was a favorite of the administration. He's a favorite of Congress, um, and he apparently has a list of folks that he's recommended um, that he's passed on. He said that he is no longer going to do the job because he's tired of commuting back and forth um, up to see his family in Connecticut. So he's got little kids. He's got three kids, nine and under. Yeah, and a lot of chickens. Yeah, it's a, yes on the cover of Backyard Chicken Breeder. Um, one, I mean, it's a cliche in Washington that people say they are leaving to spend more time with their family, but everybody I've talked to insists that that's true in this case. I have no reason to know otherwise. There's it's no just... backstory that has come out to this date. You know, we're all cynical. If there's a backstory, it'll eventually come out. But at this point, it does seem to be someone who, you know, when his name began circulating for the job two years ago, we kept hearing he wasn't sure he wanted it because of his kids. And we heard that from the beginning. So, you know, he's not the first person to leave after two years. But if you do leave after two years, not everything you set out to do will ever be completed. And that is a fact of life. And that was sort of my point. And I think that there was very widespread surprise about this news, you know, notwithstanding that he does have young kids and it had some reservations about the commute to begin with. Uh, You know, he had said publicly during the shutdown that rumors that he was leaving were inappropriate and that he had a lot left to do this year, I think was the wording that he used. Um, Almost everyone that I called the day that he announced his resignation said that they were surprised. Uh, It seemed like Alex Azar knew, but, you know, the sense I got from other people in the administration who were tweeting and making public statements is that they were caught a little bit off guard. So uh, two years is like a totally reasonable amount of time to stay in the job, but it does feel like maybe it was a little bit precipitous. I spoke to a couple of people who were surprised at the timing in March, but they had expected maybe May or June or July that they they did think he had indicated to people it was a two and a half ish year commitment. And I don't know. I didn't speak to anybody who said, yes, I knew he was going to you know, quit on March 4th or March 5th, whatever it was. Everyone was surprised at how abrupt it was that there wasn't a lot 
of people who were in the know about it. I think it happened, and I don't know what the trigger was for why was it this abrupt, um, but I do think that there are people who thought he'd be out within a few months. This is traditional in administrations that are gearing up for a re-election run. This would be about the time that some very senior person in the White House, I have no idea who that would be at this point, normally it would be the chief of staff, would say to senior officials, you have to fish or cut bait if you're going to leave, that's leave now. That's in a normal... Right. That's in a normal <laughs> I mean, administration. This so administration no has so much turnover and you know, yeah. craziness. There's we not even know. a permanent chief of staff. Right, well, so. I think it will be interesting to see who the White House picks because even though Scott Gottlieb is, does seem to be beloved by this White House, uh, you know, I think he's close with the president and also with uh, Jared Kushner and others, other people close to the president. I don't think that his portfolio and regulatory approach is necessary. Like, I feel like some of the fondness is more personal and about style and communication than it is about substance. And so I think even though he is an administrator of the FDA who the White House really likes, I could easily see them putting someone in the job who has an extremely different agenda. Yes. yes, he was sort of the the exception to the rule for this administration in terms of aggressive regulation. So. But also, um, Trump likes Secretary Azar from everything that we can see, and so it, I don't know that if you know Trump just sees a doctor he likes on Fox News and decides so that's the FDA commissioner. <laughs> I'm not sure that Alex Azar have a say in saying let's watch some other people and see who else shows up on Fox News. You know? You know, I think Azar and the president do have a a pretty good working relationship from what we can see as outsiders. Um, They're clearly working together on the drug price thing. They communicate a lot. And I think Azar, um, yes, I can see names beginning to circulate. That would be out there. Um, I'm not sure any of the most out there (laughs) names that we've all begun to hear are going to be who it would end up being because I think Azar is going to want somebody who has a fact-based science background. All right, well, let's but maybe more conservative. Okay, let's move on because we will clearly be talking about this in the weeks ahead. Um, next topic. We've spent a lot of time talking about Medicare for all the last couple of weeks. Today, I want to talk about the Affordable Care Act. Remember the Affordable Care Act? Still here. Um, it's not sexy anymore, but Democrats on Capitol Hill are still hoping to fix some of the ACA's continuing issues. There was a hearing in the House on a couple of small bills that would do things like restore funding for navigators that help people sign up for coverage, reinstitute funding for reinsurance that helps pay for the most expensive patients. Um, There are also proposals to increase subsidies because new research from my colleagues here at the Kaiser Family Foundation shows what we've talked about before, that people who earn just slightly too much to get government help now are getting really hammered if they have to buy their own insurance. Um, Kimberly, you've been sort of following the the Capitol Hill stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because, you know, as you have kind of a large portion of the Democratic caucus pushing for Medicare for all, Medicare buy-in or Medicaid buy-in, you really have a Democratic leadership saying, no, we're focusing first on fixes to the Affordable Care Act. But what they've done while they've said that is say that this is a potential area of bipartisanship. Republicans completely disagree. And that became very clear immediately when we were watching the hearing, um, which was in the um, health subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, Representative Burgess from Texas, who is the top Republican on the committee, immediately you know, kind of seized on the proposals that Democrats had put forward and, say, and said it doesn't contain the Hyde Amendment language, which is... This is, what, this is what tripped it up when they tried to do it on a bipartisan basis last year. Yes, exactly. And again, the Hyde Amendment language prevents uh, federal funds from going 
going toward abortions unless, um, you know, in very small cases of rape, incest, or when a woman's pregnancy threatens her life. So he took issue immediately with um, that language, and he also took issue with the lack of flexibility. He wants states to be able to use funds to um, toward more, you know, conservative measures, although reinsurance is definitely something that could be bipartisan. Um, and so the old divisions are back, and it might actually take a different president to be able to advance any sort of stabilization on the Affordable Care Act, even though Democrats are casting this as a potential you know, fix that could happen well, under it, this administration. It was bipartisan before the abortion issue sort of right. was, was reintroduced. I mean, the, the Republicans want to make the Hyde Amendment want to write it into permanent law. At the moment, it goes, it, it's renewed every year as part of the spending bill process. And the Democrats would prefer to keep it that way because someday they would like to get rid of it. Um, the one thing they really don't want to do is write it into permanent law. I feel like I've said this before, but a lot of these ideas that were part of a package that had some bipartisan support a year ago? It feels like so long ago. Sorry. It, was, it was last year. It was 17, year. 18, 20. It was, right. it was almost exactly a year ago that it all sort of came asunder. So uh, Senators Alexander and Murray, who are kind of a bipartisan duo in the uh, HELP Committee, were were really proposing this legislation that included some of these pieces. And there were a lot of members of the Senate on you know both parties who kind of raised their hands and said, I would vote for this. Uh, but I think that was very context-specific. Uh, that was in a moment where it looked like the markets were really in crisis. It was right after the president had decided that he was going to stop paying these cost-sharing reduction payments. And there was a lot of concern raised largely by insurers who testified before Congress that doing this would just kind of tank the markets in many states. And so I think there was a sense of kind of panic and like, we got to come in and clean this up. And then they, because of, largely because of these abortion issues, they didn't reach an agreement. That legislation never moved. And lo and behold, uh, the markets did not fail. And so I just think the crisis has passed. And the motivation to make this kind of deal in a bipartisan way doesn't exist anymore because there isn't the same urgency. I also think part of that deal was to try to the sort of give that Democrats in that deal gave to the Republicans was in exchange for doing these things that are going to shore up the Affordable Care Act, we would like more flexibility for states to try innovative approaches to covering their populations through this part of the ACA called the 1332 program, the State Innovation Waiver Program. Which was itself sort of a bipartisan compromise. When it got put into the ACA, it was a, it was sort of a, they were trying to hand, you know, Republicans something by saying, look, if your conservative state wants to try something different, you can do it using this. So I think there was like a little horse trading, like you give us some money for reinsurance, we'll give you this new state flexibility. And again, in the intervening year, the Trump administration through regulation essentially gave the states very close to the same flexibility that that legislation would have. And so I just think there is the recipe for a deal. Like the, it, the Democratic leadership in the House is right that some of these ideas historically had some bipartisan buy-in. But I just think that like facts on the ground are different. We're in a different moment and there is less motivation for Republicans to sign on to these kinds of bills. So do these well, things the, ever no, the get other things, Yes, because they're, they're, they're granting waivers. So, I mean, a few months ago, I thought some kind of, in the right after the election, I thought some kind of skinny, slimmed down um, version of Murray Alexander had a had a maybe chance. I never thought it was like hugely likely. But in November, December, I could see a pathway toward some small fixes going through on a bipartisan basis as part of some kind of larger deal. I think it, in addition to the abortion issue, which just gets, you know, becomes a, a showstopper, um, 
basically CMS is giving states waivers that red states and blue states have done things to shore up their exchanges, um, mostly through um, reinsurance. And since states um, are getting those, and we have no reason to think more states could not get those, um, you know, the administration has been supportive of that, and it achieves some of the same things. It's not, again, it's a pa- these are patches. It's not like remodeling your house. It's like fixing a leak. I think that instead of fighting over a modest legislative fix that's going to get caught up in an abortion war anyway at the end, some of the things we were talking about, some of these small steps could get wrapped into some other legislation somewhere along the line in the coming year. But I, th- I think the waivers are the way the states are going to go because they know they can get them. Kimberly, I feel like put this in the right context, which is this is the Democratic leadership saying, yeah, we're going to talk about these big, ambitious, uh, sort of idealistic ways of fixing the healthcare system. But also, like, here are some technocratic fixes. Like, we see the holes, the problems. We have this existing edifice right now that is working relatively well in our estimation, but has these problems. Like, let's deal with the problems. And I think even if those things don't pass, it at least shows that the Democrats are kind of engaged on this issue, responsive to the particular problems that people are having. I think it's a good message for some of the more moderate Democrats who want to be able to demonstrate that they're not ignoring health care just because they're not signing on to Medicare for all. There was a, you know, a judge appointment this week, and the judge was one of the lawyers at the Department of Justice who signed off on on, on DOJ trying to overturn part, not all of, but part of Obamacare in the Texas lawsuit. And so the, and that became a pre-existing condition battle. You vote for this judge, you're voting against pre-existing conditions. So I think that the pre-existing conditions continues to be important to voters. Um, Coverage, cost, the politics, I mean, there's a whole, that's a whole nother long story. We talked about Medicare for all for for weeks in a row, but I mean, obviously there's a split among Democrats on how, how much to act, how much to talk about. That's We'll come back to that. But the sort of the general, we're going to protect your health care, Democrats will hold hearings and they'll keep talking about this. I don't really see a big legislative vehicle for a major Obamacare 2.0, let's fix it all and make it look beautiful um, legislative all right, package right well, let's, now. Let's move to the states then, because also part of the Affordable Care Act um, was the Medicaid expansion. Voters in several Republican-leaning states last year passed initiatives calling for, for Medicaid to be expanded. But uh, Republican legislators in some of those states are pushing back. What What is going on in some of these states like, you know, Utah, uh, where voters said, yeah, let's expand Medicaid? And governors said, if the vo- we will respect what the voters do. And then no, they had, in Maine. it turned out to have a couple of footnotes. <laughs> yeah. so in the early days of Obamacare, I should say the early days after the Supreme Court made the Medicaid expansion optional, Voluntary, right? right? So states had to decide, are we going to expand Medicaid or not? There were a lot of states kind of out of the gate that just said, like, you know, this is a yes, no checkbox. I check yes. But then there was sort of like this next group of states, largely Republican-led states, who said, OK, like, I'm interested in expanding coverage to more low-income people in my state, but I don't want to sign on to the Obamacare thing. And I want the program to look more in line with my conservative ideas about markets, about responsibility, about other features uh, that I think work better in healthcare. And they went to the Obama administration and they said, you know, let's make a deal. No, the Trump administration. No. The oh, Obama the Obama administration. administration. Oh, I said, see. This is like the early Arkansas. on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So there were a number of states, Arkansas, Iowa, Indiana, uh, that went to 
the federal government with proposals about how to do it differently. And a lot of them got approved, not all of them. But and they didn't lo- get all of what they want. But they no, got, but they right, got so they got so we saw, you know, in the state in the Medicaid expansions that got approved during the Obama administration, we saw what we call the private option in Arkansas, where basically the federal government, instead of putting uh, giving the state money to put people into Medicaid, it gave the state of Arkansas money to or gave people in the state of Arkansas money to go buy private plans in the exchange, similar to what higher income people got. In Indiana, people had to have uh, cost sharing. There were these uh, special accounts they had to put money in. They had to do various activities. So there's, you know, sort of all of these different ideas. In Iowa, I think people below the poverty line got in one system. People above the poverty line got into the private market. So we saw a lot of experimentation. And I think that what we're seeing right now with these kind of later adopting uh, conservative states is not that different. They are trying to make the best deal for themselves so that they can do the Medicaid expansion, both because there are constituencies in their state that want to do it, or in some cases, the voters told them they wanted to do it. But they want to put a more conservative stamp on it. They want to do something that feels a little bit different than just we're doing Obamacare. So I put these in a couple of different categories. Uh, work requirements is one that a bunch of states that have come in late have uh, wanted to do, and the administration has approved them. And now we're seeing a bunch of states that want to do uh, partial expansion. So they want to expand Medicaid up to to the poverty line. But then for people above the poverty line, they want them to just get Obamacare subsidies. The way and that remember they do the expansion, now. as it was written in, in the Affordable Care, it goes to 138 percent of poverty. Well, as written, it goes to 130. Well, yes, but in, in practice, it goes, <laughs> good point. In practice, it goes to 138. And that is something the Obama administration said no to. Uh, so far, the Trump administration has not approved uh, something like that, but like, we'll see. There's a bunch I mean, there's, of states There's been a lot now. of... Um, we're not sure what they're going to do. And and even within the Obama administration, there was debate about that. And it wasn't it wasn't a purely ideological all or nothing. It was they weren't sure that they, you know, it's the way the statute was worded. And there was disagreement about whether they had the authority, the authority to, do to let a state do. There were there were people within the Obama administration who would have rather covered because the people above 100 percent can go into the exchange and get subsidized. And you had the you have the coverage gap. You have some people who are really poor and who have nothing because their state has no exchange. Of people yes. who are really poor right. who have nothing, right? And even more a few years ago. So that was that was sort of a legal. It was partly politics and it was partly legal interpretation. And because we're two years into the Obama of the Trump administration and they haven't made their position clear on partial expansion, I think they're also struggling with the legal. Do they have the authority to do this? I think there's a second reason why they've been reluctant to do it, which is that well, there. are Maybe two other reasons. One is that I think there are people in the Trump administration who are ambivalent about whether they want more states to expand Medicaid. I mean, there are people in the administration that don't like Obamacare, that don't want Obamacare to get a kind of firmer toehold in some of these more right-leaning states because it will make it harder to do something else in the future. And so, you know, if partial expansion looks like a good compromise for a state that's not sure, then if they say okay to it, more of them will come in. That could be bad. But I also think that there is a very strong fiscal case for states to pursue partial expansion regardless of their ideology. The way Obamacare is structured is that uh, subsidies that go to people on the exchange, the federal government pays 100 percent of the bill. Medicaid is a match where the state has to put up at most 10 percent of the cost, but that's still 10 percent of the cost. Uh, Compared to nothing if they're getting subsidies. Compared to nothing for subsidies. So, you know, the state has every incentive, if it has any kind of fiscal pressure at all, to put those people above the poverty line into a program that the federal government pays for entirely. And so I think that there is a reasonable concern, and my expectation would be, that if this got approved in one state, it would start to become a more and more popular 
popular approach as states face fiscal constraints. And I think that would be true of many liberal states as well as these more conservative states that are asking now. Massachusetts for many years has been asking for this. I think that's one example of a blue state that's very committed to Obamacare that nevertheless would rather not have to pay 10 percent. And they do things a little bit differently, though, because they actually help also subsidize the people on the exchange. So the people who are there are getting lower premiums there, too. So they feel like that's a way that they can try to bring more people in. But yeah, ultimately, the states want to be able to shift a lot more costs onto the federal government, and they want to include uh, private insurers a little bit more. So that's kind of you know where they're headed and what they're aiming for. Some things never change. <laughs> All right. One more topic this week, um, vaccine policy. The Senate uh, Health Committee this week held a hearing on vaccines that started with the somehow controversial statement that vaccines save lives uh, and ended with the conclusion that public health officials need to do a better job of communicating with, well, the public. Um, But others suggest a better way to make sure everyone is protected from preventable contagious diseases is to actually pass laws. Um, Why is this issue so difficult in 2019? I think we don't totally understand. And there's been tons of research. I mean, this is a 25, 30-year-old problem. I mean, it began as a sort of specific fear of a preservative in vaccines that was falsely linked to autism that studied that famous wrong study was, study, yeah. was, was retracted, but that was in the 90s. And and now the whole anti-vax thing is, is mul- it, it's more, it's not just, I mean, that, first of all, that study was wrong. Secondly, that preservative is no longer used in childhood vaccines, but the anti-vaxxing thing has just grown and grown. And it's also in Europe. It's not just, I mean, there's problems in Italy and in a bunch of other countries. Officials need to do a better job of communicating. Yes, they do. But we don't understand what's why the community. There's been 25 years of communication. And, you know, it's it hasn't. So there's something cognitive. And it's, you know, there's there's several strains of of vaccine hesitancy is the word that the public health community uses or just anti-vaxxers being a a phrase that they they don't necessarily like. But it is a shorthand that people recognize. Um, Yes, I I, I read a lot about vaccine hesitancy this week. Yeah, I mean, you you know, you you saw statements from officials this week. You saw, you know, very, you know, you saw plans and and the Surgeon General, I think, is going to go do something and, and, you know, CDC and everybody. But I don't think that these... The people who are afraid of vaccines don't believe it when the CDC comes in. And the CDC has been saying it's safe since we've had some good CDC communicators and they haven't broken through. And the celebrities who say it caused my kids autism get a whole lot more YouTube hits than the CDC people. So there's something bigger than a public role. We don't understand sort of the... Do we know what the role of social media is? One of the, the some witnesses, of it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the witnesses at the hearing was this 18-year-old kid who was incredibly poised. He's a senior in high school. These are great stories about these kids, right? Yeah. Yeah, who, um, you know, whose mom, you know, refused to let him uh, get vaccinated. When he came of age, he did his own research and decided to go out and get himself vaccinated. Um, but he said, you know, they, 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 the senators asked, you know, where does your mom get her information? He's like, social media. You there know. was a really interesting piece by Brendan Nyhan, who's an academic who studies these kind of communications challenges. And he wrote in the upshot this week. And I thought it really kind of blew my mind a little bit because basically what he said is that there's a lot of blaming of social media for a disseminating these ideas, but that actually vaccine hesitancy is uh, is something that has a long history in the United States going back even further than these concerns about autism, that there's sort of a subculture of people who just don't feel comfortable with vaccines, don't like them. And some of them are being persuaded by these messages that they hear. But some of them are just against it and they're kind of looking for a hook to hang their opposition on. 
And he thinks that social media actually is like more of a symptom than a cause, that the people who don't want to give their kids vaccines are seeing and consuming and, and talking about these messages that they get on social media. But if there was no Facebook, probably they would find some other place to justify the choice that they're making. And what he argues, and I think there's good evidence for this too, is that trying to persuade people that vaccines are a good idea, that they're safe, once they have kind of latched onto one of these extreme ideological oppositions to it, is tends not to be very effective. It's really hard to change people's minds about vaccines, but that if you just change the laws and make it harder for people to get around state requirements to vaccinate their children in order to send them to school you can eliminate a lot of the problem. There are going to be some people who are going to sort of fight, 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 pull their kids out of school, you know, uh, try to get medical excuses, et cetera. But that most people who are in this vaccine hesitant category who are not giving their kids the full vaccine schedule, once they have to do it to send their kid to school, they're going to sort of back down because it's not this deep ideological commitment for them. They have some anxiety about it, but they you know, want to be able to access the public school system. So I do think this is an interesting example of an area in which policy change is super powerful, that persuasion is all well and good, but there are some people who you're probably not going to be able to convince. But if you just make it a little bit harder for them to follow through on their convictions, they may back down that way. And I find that as a reporter sort of depressing because I feel like our mission is to educate people about the truth and hope that that persuades them and changes their behavior. But there is a kind of long history of really depressing research in this particular area that it is really hard to change the minds of committed people, even giving them science-based information well communicated. Although there was also a kind of a scary story in the LA Times this week um, in California, which tightened its laws a couple of years ago um, about doctors who were basically selling medical exemption notes to people wow. for and also, they've never seen. You know, we have this, you know, like 10 separate measles outbreaks in this country right now. It's all across the country and a couple of pockets are more severe. Um, yes, you have some state lawmakers talking about exactly what you two are talking about, which is tighten the laws. And you also have state legislators using this moment where vaccines are in the news to say, let's loosen the laws. Childhood vaccine, childhood diseases are good for you. It strengthens your immune system. The government shouldn't tell you what to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was actually a little surprised to see a story this week. I mean, we, you know, when I reported, so I want to do a story on, on the new um, wave of vaccine proposals in the state legislature. My initial assumption was, oh, everybody wants to tighten them up now. And then I read a little <laughs> further and said, Whoops. No. <laughs> and I think that's actually an example of how, like, you know, now people aren't talking about thimerosal. They're talking about how getting measles is good for your immune system. Yeah, you know, people were actually having chicken measles pox parties. parties. <laughs> but measles parties, too. I understand the chicken pox parties, although that's also not a great idea from a public health perspective. But people are actually purposely exposing their kids to measles, which is really dangerous. Can I just say, I know we've just talked about how these messages don't matter, but I just feel like, let me just say, that measles is a disease that is extremely contagious that lots of people used to get before we had vaccines and that causes severe illness in almost everyone who gets it and causes really serious lifelong complications in a fraction of children and adults who get it and that also does kill a very small fraction of people who get it. That this is not... One out, a, of, one out of every four kids with measles is hospitalized. This is not a trivial disease that you would want your child to get. But it's also not going to be fixed by some group of grad students just doing a great video. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
It is time for our extra credit segment. That is where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Yeah, um, I actually picked an article from the Globe and Mail. Um, It's by Kelly Grant, who I love following on Twitter. Kelly, if you're listening. (laughs) Um, It's called Pharmacare Panel Offers No Prescription for How the New Program Would Work. Um, So Kelly has been following the way that Canada is exploring how to to provide a universal drug system. Which um, they don't have, which I don't think anybody knows. Right, Only right. some provinces do. So yeah, so. right. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, so it's interesting how, you know, to be able to follow what's going on with Canada with the rhetoric that we've been having in the U.S. here. Um, some of the things that you'll read in this story sound eerily similar to what's going on with the United States, you know, people being unable to afford groceries and rent because of um, high drug prices. And so um, highly encourage. Uh, and yet their drug prices are way lower than ours. They are. They are. And people are going to Canada to buy drugs and things like that. We're talking about re-importing drugs from Canada in certain parts of the country. So um, it's it's a worthwhile read, and it's it's always good to keep in mind as we're looking at, um, you know, how the U.S. healthcare system is looking at making changes and what's going on elsewhere. Absolutely. Joanne? Uh, mine is uh, by Marshall Allen of ProPublica. It's my favorite. I think it's all of our health, favorite healthcare story in quite a while. Uh, its headline is, I'm a journalist. Apparently, I'm also one of America's top doctors. Let's just start out by saying Marshall is a really great reporter, but he is not a doctor, let alone a top doctor. But he got a voicemail telling him he was. And you should go read the rest of the story about, I mean, even when he told the people putting the top doctor awards out that he was actually an investigative reporter, they still sold him the plaque at a discount. So, I mean, it's funny, but it's also like you, you if you see these plaques and awards and lists, you actually think there's something, maybe not a lot, but you think there's something behind the fact that your doctor is a top doctor and it's just telemarketing. So take that into account next time you choose a doctor. It's also a great read. It's a fabulous story. It, it, it's just, it, it's, I read it twice. It's just a great story. It's a wonderful yarn. Margo. Uh, I wanted to draw your attention to an article by Carolyn Johnson at the Washington Post. The headline is, Long Overlooked by Science, Pregnancy is Finally Getting Attention It Deserves. And uh, Carolyn looked at the sort of terrible paucity of research into pregnancy, the biology of pregnancy, the treatment of pregnant women, the effects of medications on women in pregnancy. And uh, her lead is a story about a bunch of really world-class researchers who wanted to study preeclampsia, and they basically couldn't get any funding for the research because the funders felt like, oh, it will be too hard to study this population. It will be too risky. Um, They might get sued. And and she also drew attention to... Uh, this this thing that is sort of maddening, which is that historically pregnant women have been treated uh, as though they are in, they are um, susceptible to coercion and unable to make informed decisions about their own health care. And that has really informed the way that medical research has approached them. So I just want to quote a paragraph from the story. In January, an updated federal policy that governs protections for human research subjects went into effect, officially removing pregnant women from being listed as, quote, vulnerable to coercion or undue influence, along with children and mentally disabled people. So, you know, our scientific community has been treating pregnant women as if they are not adults who are capable of making their own healthcare decisions. And that has prevented us from learning a lot of the basic science that would help us understand pregnancy and would help us uh, aid women who 
who have health complications during pregnancy. And we've we've been talking so much about maternal mortality. This story was really infuriating. It's like one of the reasons we haven't been able to address maternal mortality is because we're not doing the research on pregnancy. Right. And there's also, to, I mean, as a woman who has two children and who spent three months in bed, as Julie came. Yes, came I remember. Came, we had a picnic in my bedroom. Um, there's no, there's really no evidence for that. I mean, they put you on bed rest and tell you to just lie there for three months. And in my case, three months without, but as my older child said at the time, you know, mommy, once they come out, they're really hard to get back in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway, great story. All right, well, my story is from my KHN colleague, Christina Jewett. It's called Hidden FDA Reports Detail Harm Caused by Scores of Medical Devices. It's about how problems caused by devices, this story focuses on surgical staplers, which if they go wrong can actually do a lot of damage, uh, can be reported to FDA in ways other than its big public database. These alternative reporting pathways um, are effectively unavailable not just to the public, but to doctors who, as a result, may not know of serious problems with malfunctioning devices. It's yet another kind of scary story. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We'll do another Ask Us Anything soon. We are at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Cannon. At Leonard K.L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>